What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We're very glad that you're with us. Uh, we are here to, uh, to answer those questions for especially our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you can't figure out where to get that question answered, we can help you with that. Also, uh, we also hear from a lot of uh, Catholics who uh, perhaps they have a coworker who's not a Catholic or a family member who's not a Catholic, and then they get asked the question, they don't know how to answer it, so then they come to us. In any event, whatever it is, here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205 271 2985. If you're watching us on TV today, your best shot is to uh, send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there live right now. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we'll uh, hopefully get your question answered on today's program. Again, for those of you listening on the radio today, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here. This is from Jacob. Jacob says, my wife and I had a courthouse wedding. At the time, my wife was a cradle Catholic who had fallen away, and I am not currently a Catholic. My wife has come back to the church. We're trying to get our marriage convalidated. The process has been taking very long. We're very diligent to follow up with the parish on getting this going, but with no resolve just yet. Can you please explain the difference between convalidation and radical sanation and which would be best for us this whole process i must say is really driving me away from the church thanks jacob yeah jacob thanks i really appreciate the question i am perplexed as to why this should be a problem the yeah. only reason it could possibly be a problem is if well to that i can think of would be if one of you had a previous marriage that for which you needed an annulment, ah. right? That that could gum up to works. But provided this was your first marriage, each of you, and there's mm -hmm. no, you know, living ex-spouse out there to gum this up, I mean, this shouldn't take, you know, more than a week. I mean, honestly, all you have to really do is go to the parish priest and say, would you marry us? And this is a convalidation. We married in a civil, well, now we want to have the ecclesiastical wedding and sacramental validity. And I mean, it can, I mean, there's really nothing to prevent it from happening. I mean, there's no impediment to, to, to obtaining a valid marriage in the Catholic Church, unless there is that annulment, yeah. right? So that that's that's I don't know why it would take so long unless there's an annulment in the works. Now, an annulment can be problematic because then what the church has to do is go and look and say, okay, were any of these previous relationships actually valid marriages? Because mm -hmm. if they were, that that's a problem. You could be married to somebody else, and so you can't you know have a second spouse. Um, now and, uh, he's he's saying that he is not a Catholic. 
it doesn't matter. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he'd still, if he was married or she was married, they'd still need an annulment. Yeah. Right? And a non-Catholic can marry a Catholic validly. That's not a problem. Now, okay. in terms of the radical senation, radical senation only obtains when uh, one of the spouses is unwilling mm-hmm. to go through with the convalidation. Right? So if you said, hey, I'm done, I'm out of here, I want nothing to do with the Catholic Church, uh, but you were still willing to live with your wife, your wife could request a could request a radical senation, right? Um, but it sounds to me like you're you're willing to do what she wants. You're willing to go along with this. So I don't. I mean, radical senation wouldn't really apply. It's really only when you have the case of an unwilling spouse who would is otherwise willing to stay married, but just doesn't want the Catholic part. Very good, Jacob. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Dominic. Could you please comment on the four strands of the Pentateuch? Moses is given credit for writing the first five books of the Old Testament, but now I'm hearing about the J-E-P-D, that is the Yahwists, Elohists, priestly sources, and Deuteronomists as the writers of these books. Any thoughts on this? Um, Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So um, this is a standard uh, scholarly theory that's held by just about everybody who works in the field, irrespective of whether they're Catholic, non-Catholic, conservative, uh, modernist. It's a pr- pretty pretty standard fare. Okay. And it's just a theory about the way the books were composed. And the idea is that the, the completed Pentateuch that we have today um, is a product of compilation and that there were uh, source texts underlying it that at some later period were woven or edited together, right? Um, and uh, and you'll you'll find say Pope John Paul II for example when in his lectures on the theology of the body which are lectures about the Genesis creation account and we have two different creation accounts in Genesis that come from different strata of the tradition uh, John Paul will specifically identify uh, these hypothetical sources and and uh, and their different theological perspectives so you'll you'll find it work its way into even magisterial teaching it, that doesn't make it a doctrine of the Catholic faith I'm not suggesting that it's a doctrine. Uh, but it's presupposed even at the highest levels of the church's doctrinal authority. So it's really not problematic from a from a Catholic point of view. Um, you know, the question how to how to historically arrive at Moses's the historical Moses's connection to the text, right? What's the relationship between these various strands of literary tradition and and uh, and the Moses or the Sinai history? Well, that's that's really something that's lost to history. We, we can't really know that part, right? That's, that's something that's accessible by faith, the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch or its connection to Moses and Sinai, something we hold as an article of faith. But I think it's probably passed beyond the realm of archaeology to be able to discern. Um, there is a pretty good book. It's not a Catholic book. It's not written from a position of faith necessarily, uh, but it's a good summary of the state of the research on this question. It's called Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Elliott Friedman. He's a, mm. a Jewish uh, a biblical scholar, and it's a pretty accessible probably the most widely read sort of textbooky college, you know, undergraduate type treatment of this topic. All right. And now I know how to pronounce uh, Deuteronomist. Deuteronomist, yeah. Got it right, finally. All right. And uh, Dominic, thank you so much uh, for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to tackle a couple of these emails on each of our live programs on the radio side. And then uh, once a month or so, we'll uh, tackle a whole bunch of emails. We'll deep uh, dive deeply into the EWTN call to communion mailbag. Always enjoy doing that. Again, the address, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, though. We'll talk with Paul in South Carolina, Brian in Virginia, 
Virginia. Tom in Ohio. Looks like three lines open right now. Get in early at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. Hey, glad you're with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. And we're going to begin today with Paul, a first-time caller in South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Paul. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thank you very, very much. I have a friend, a family friend. Both parents had uh, passed, and I've tried to keep in contact with the kids encouraging them in terms of their faith, etc. Neither one of the kids are still practicing. Recently, the youngest child, boy, uh, about 38 years old, over the last two years, met a very nice young lady, uh, and they are getting married. This young man was married previously. Uh, He's divorced. The wedding was not annulled. They've asked me to preside over their wedding. They realize it will not be a religious ceremony. Uh, it's not going to be a small wedding, but they I think they did it because a uh, it was something that connected them to their family, and I think they know about my faith, uh, though it would not be a religious ceremony. Uh, the woman he's marrying is a uh, was a resistant Protestant. Uh, so there you go, and uh, I look forward to getting your wisdom. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I, I wouldn't officiate at that wedding personally, and the reason I wouldn't is the groom is Catholic, I think you mentioned. Wife is non-Catholic, anti-Catholic, uh, but as a Catholic, he has a canonical obligation to marry in the Church. And if he's got a previous marriage, then he has to obtain an annulment before he can validly marry in the Catholic Church. And so... Y- uh, you know, it's not like he can have a real marriage outside the Catholic faith. Because he's Catholic, the only way he can have a valid marriage is if he follows canonical protocol and is married. He could marry with a dispensation from the Church to, to dispense with canonical form, mm-hmm. uh, but he has to do it the Catholic way, and otherwise it's not a valid marriage. And so I wouldn't—I mean, from, my, from the point of view of a Catholic is that this is a sham wedding. And I wouldn't want to. Pres- I wouldn't want to preside. I wouldn't want to be implicated, involved in in perpetrating a, you know, kind of a marital fraud there, right? I'm, I'd, I'd be sending the message that this is okay what you're doing, and and this is you know this is a well, it's non-religious, but you know we all know what's going on. No, I don't want to send that message. So I would encourage him. No, get the annulment, have the wedding in the church. If you can't have the wedding in the church because your spouse is unwilling or your desired spouse is unwilling, you ask for a dispensation. Follow the procedure, be obedient to the Church, and do it the right way. Paul, thanks so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. And that opens up a line for you right now. One line open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Let's go now to Brian in Virginia, listening today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Brian. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question on the Marian doctrine, and is Mary being Queen of Heaven and Mediatrix of all graces, is this um, derived from Scripture, or is this kind of what the doctors of the Church or other people have come up with the theology over time? 
Yeah, thanks, and I, I appreciate the question. A little bit of a false dichotomy. Uh, well, quite a bit of a false dichotomy to okay. suggest that something is either a development over time or grounded in Scripture. It really misconstrues the way Christian doctrine functions, right? which is always a reflection on the Bible, hmm. and it, and those reflections always develop over time. So it's always a question of both and. Um, but uh, the specifically, Mediatrix of All Graces and Queen of Heaven are they are devotional titles of the Blessed Virgin Mary more than doctrines. Meaning, we don't have a dogma that says, you know, this is this is who Mary is. We have, we do have Marian dogmas about her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, uh, her assumption into heaven, uh, her divine maternity. These are these are dogmas of the faith. What you mentioned are not dogmas so much as they are devotional titles. They're they're common uh, phrases that are used in Catholic prayer and and reflection, uh, but they're not dogmas, and so they don't require the same kind of assent that a dogma does. So the Church teaches dogmatically, for example, that Mary is ever-virgin, meaning if you're a Catholic, you have to believe that. You have to believe that. You, you can't, if you disbelieve it, if you, if you reject it, then you are literally a heretic. Um, Queen of Heaven and Mediatrix of All Graces are not dogmas. They're, they're devotional titles, meaning that they're p- things that people can use in their prayer life and their reflection. You're not obligated to. So you could pass your entire Catholic life and never address Mary as Queen of Heaven, and you could still be Catholic, right? I wouldn't recommend it, but, I mean, (laughs) you could do it, you know? Um, Even more so with Mediatrix of All Graces. I mean, this is something that the Church has has very specifically rejected to affirm as a dogma. I mean, there have been theologians that said, hey, let's affirm this as a dogma, and the Church has said, nope, ain't going to do that. We're not going to do that. Um, And so you could spend your whole Catholic life um, and do Mariology. You could be a specialist in the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and not accept that title, and you would not be un-Catholic in, in consequence. Um, but let's talk about them a little bit and unpack maybe some of the ambiguity. So wh- why would we want to assert, why would someone want to address Mary under the title of Queen of Heaven? Well, it's because she's the mother of the king. And, and that gives her a royal dignity, and if you look, a lot of when we celebrate this liturgically, uh, we uh, uh, and devotionally, we usually invoke those passages of the Old Testament where, um, say, Bathsheba is depicted in a kind of uh, special relationship to to King Solomon in his court, and she has this status of the you know the, the queen mother of the royal court, and that's the imagery that it draws from. And so, really, any Marian title is a, ultimately devolves back to Jesus. It flows from her special, unique relationship to Christ. Uh, and so if you affirm her Queen of Heaven, it's because you affirm Christ as King and Lord of the universe. Um, uh, Mediatrix of all grace. So this one's confusing, and that's why the Church has has not decided to make it a dogma. Um, and it, it makes people think, who don't know the way Catholic theology functions, hey, you're saying that we're saved by Mary and not by Jesus? That sounds sketchy. And it does sound sketchy, and that's not what it means. Um, if you prayed for the salvation of the world, personally, yeah. you asked God to give everybody the grace they needed to be saved, you would, in fact, be a mediator of all grace. Yeah. Because the Catholic position is that prayer works, mm-hmm. prayers for grace work, they have an effect, and, and you are an instrumental cause of the salvation of the world if you ask God to save the world. He will hear your prayer. He will, he will grant people the graces sufficient and necessary for their salvation if we ask him to. You do that, voila, you've become a mediator of all grace. 
doesn't mean you're the only mediator of all <laughs> grace, and maybe not even a particularly effective one. Mm. And I mean, this is a this is a silly analogy, right? Because this is not how grace works. But if you could imagine, you know, um, uh, you know, trying to to you know lug a heavy weight up a hill, and you've got like you know fifty guys who are all like two hundred and fifty pound power lifters, mm-hmm. you know, with chains strapped around their waists, and then. Here comes Andrews with his little piece of dental floss, <laughs> you know, and we're all tugging, you know, and the and the thing gets to the top of the hill. How much did I contribute? Mm. Well, not a lot, but I was a tugger of all weight up the hill, you know, and sure. that's so so you know, so who who carries most of the weight in terms of the church's work of intercession? Well, preeminently Christ, of course, who lives to make intercession for the sure. church. Um, uh, but all Christians participate in the mediation of Christ. We all are, as it were, other Christs to other people. We 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 follow in His likeness and image. We seek, we seek to be conformed in His likeness and image, and our prayers for one another are effective. Saint James says the prayer of a righteous man is very effective. Paul can say in Colossians, "I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of His body, the Church." That His apostolic ministry was a kind of mediation of grace, not the only mediation of grace, but a way of extending. Uh, the the incarnation of Christ to the world. And you can do that too. But it would be particularly important to acknowledge Mary's role because of her divine maternity, because of her sinlessness, her immaculate conception, um, her her status in the divine economy, that Mm -hmm. she is a particularly effective, in fact, the most effective intercessor apart from Christ. And so she, of course, prays, like the whole church does, for the salvation of the world, for God to grant the grace sufficient to salvation to mm-hmm. every sentient being, and thus she is, in a literal sense, the mediator, mediatrix of all graces. But she's not the only mediatrix of all graces. Um, your grandmother is a mediatrix of grace, but not on the same order as the Blessed Virgin Mary. Sure. Is that helpful for you, Brian? That is helpful. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with, I guess, some writings from Louis-Marie de Montfort and um, Maximilian Mary Colbe, and I'm they, they talk as if they're, these things are kind of written in stone, and so I, I needed a little clarification. Okay, so if I had known you were coming from the de Montfortian perspective, I would have <laughs> added another qualification. Okay. Uh, de Montfort's not a doctor of the Church. He's not a doctor of the Church, um, meaning the Church has not said that Louis de Montfort's Mariology is the go-to place for understanding the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He's a devotional writer that's very popular with some Catholics in the Latin Church. Okay. And and you are not obligated to hold the theology of Louis de Montfort. You do not have to. And if there are there are other Mariologies out there that are acceptable, you might take a look at the book by Hugo Rahner called Our Lady and the Church. Um, or uh, you might look at... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, you might look at his book, um, Daughter of Zion. I mean, there are, lo- there are lots of approaches to the question of the Blessed Virgin Mary that don't ever come close to a de Montfortian perspective. Very good. Brian, thanks so much uh, for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, Charles has an interesting question here. Uh, watching us on YouTube today, Charles says, Can you explain the relation of the morning offering to Sunday Mass? If you're spiritually offering joys, works, etc., during the week, are you offering the same exact stuff on Sunday? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, so here's an analogy, right? Baptism is unique as a sacrament. 
in that it introduces me to the person of Christ. I become a member of Christ's body, the church. It infuses me with sanctifying grace. It affects the forgiveness of my sins. I become, through baptism, a priest in the Catholic Church who can offer the sacrifice of my life along with the sacrifice of Mass. Um, but it's not like those graces are only given during the, say, five seconds or so that the priest is pouring water over your head, right? I mean, there, there's the permanent character of baptism that you never lose, mm-hmm. but that sanctifying grace that comes through baptism also comes through other sacraments and in other ways, and it can be deepened, and can, you can merit more, and you can lose it, and you can go into the state of mortal sin, and it's a sort of fluid relationship that one has with God, even though it's initiated in baptism. And uh, in the same way, there is a, there's a unique presentation of the sacrifice of Christ that takes place in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, because the very victim who died on Calvary is there. Christ is body, blood, soul, and divinity on the altar. And so when we offer our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings, and sorrows, together with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, in the performance of the rite, it is uniquely efficacious. If we have the right disposition, it's uniquely efficacious in the sanctification of the soul. And Pius XII says it's the most efficacious means of attaining sanctity, uniting our sacrifice to that of to that of Christ and the cross represented for us in the Mass. But it doesn't mean that we stop making that offering when we walk out of the Mass. No, the whole point of a sacrament is that it's habitual. It's habitual. We, we become habituated to a disposition, to an attitude, to a way of relating to God that's figured in the sacrament, that's presented in the sacrament, but absolutely must carry forth into the rest of our life. So there's a pattern of interior offering set forth from us in the Mass. The reason we do that, one of them, is so that we can maintain that internal disposition throughout the rest of the week. And so it's the same offering, if you will, Mm -hmm. presented in a different mode, a sacramental Uh mode, which is intrinsically a more efficacious mode. But it's a, it's, it's a matter of degree rather than kind. Okay, great question. Uh, Charles, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Let's go now to Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, I When I moved to my new place, I donated my collection of Bible versions, except New American Bible Revised Edition. So that's the one I'm talking about. This I'm reading through it as I have several times, and I'm on Psalm 34, and for, on verse 1 it says, Of David, when he said men nest before Abimelech, and there's a note, a scribal error for Achish. In one, 1 Samuel 21, 13-16, David said men nest before Achish, not Abimelech. Now, if there can be a scribal error in the Psalms, why can't there be scribal errors all over the Bible. Yeah, I thanks. Mean, I can absolutely address that. So we need to distinguish between two kinds of errors, maybe three kinds of errors that could be ascribed to the Bible. One of them is a textual error, and that's the kind of error that you've just identified. A textual error happens when uh, someone in the past whose job was to literally copy the Bible and then pass it on to the next guy. This is before the days of printing presses. Uh, and so we're not talking about say, King David, as he's pinning the psalm. We're talking about maybe a, a Masoretic scribe who lives a thousand years later, okay. right? Um, that, he, that he wrote down the Hebrew wrong, all right? And, that, and we have evidence of this in the New Testament text as well. I mean, there are, there are manuscript traditions where, you know, some copyist's version tends to predominate maybe in Alexandria, and another one predominates in Byzantium. 
and you can find minor differences of spelling and punctuation, and sometimes whole words will be different between, say, you know, the Alexandrian tradition from the Byzantine tradition. And again, these are matters of some human copyist, not the divine author, but the human copyist who centuries after the fact is, is passing this manuscript down through the centuries. And there's a science of textual criticism, we call it lower textual criticism, the job of which is to try to figure out which is the best reading. And mm. that's that's what you're getting. You're getting some modern scholars' judgment about what's probably the preferred reading. Uh, now, when it comes to the question of biblical authority, well, I'll have to get to that on the other side of the break because here comes the music. So just All hang right. with us. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Yeah, don't go away there, Tom. Uh, sit tight. We'll continue with this question in a moment. We'll also talk with Mark in Houston, Maria in Syracuse, New York, Maureen also in New York, Kathleen in Boise, Idaho. Busy phones today here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Do stay with us. called to communion here on EWTN. Glad that you're with us today. Uh, also, Tom is with us in Twinsburg, Ohio. Before the break, we were beginning to answer his question regarding errors in the Bible. Yeah, thanks. So before the break, we began to lay out the kinds of things people might ascribe uh, or might, might determine to be errors in Scripture. The one uh -huh. that, that Tom identified was a what we call a textual error, and this is not a matter of the divine author. This is not God's inspiration. This isn't uh, King David or Isaiah putting pen to paper. This is maybe someone whose job was to copy sacred scripture hundreds of years after the event. Maybe one of the Hebrew Masoretes, for example, mm -hmm. who's passing this thing on. And so this is, I mean, I'll, I could do that. Right? I could pick up the Gospel of Matthew and copy it out and decide to change a word and then and then hand it on to Tom and say, here's my copy of the book of Matthew. And if he didn't have access to any other text, he would just get my copied version. With mm -hmm. it. So that, that's going to happen in the history of of, uh, of the transmission of the text down through the centuries. Now, fortunately, we have a pretty good idea of where those variations have, have come in manuscripts over the centuries. There's a, whole, there's a whole discipline of biblical study that looks into that, and scholars have a pretty good idea what the, what the original readings are. And, and generally speaking, they're really not matters that affect the doctrine of the Church at all. Right, so uh, I mean, uh, they're really inconsequential in terms of the Catholic faith. Um, th another kind of error that someone might ascribe to sacred scripture would be, um, let's say that there is something in the sacred text itself, something that um, you know, the King David wrote, or that uh, that Matthew wrote, or something mm -hmm. um, that uh, that seems well, maybe the historical evidence doesn't quite back that up. The claim is written down in some way other than the way archaeology or scholarship has been able to discern. And that would be a problem if we were fundamentalists, right? If, if the way Catholics looked at the Bible was, um, you know, the Bible is this, uh, this kind of um, rule book or guidebook on Christian life, and every one of the propositions, all of the sentences of sacred scripture in their denotative sense are to be taken at face value, and the job of the theologian is simply to line up the propositions of scripture into a coherent synthesis, and then voila, that's the Christian faith. Now that is explicitly what fundamentalists try to do, right? Fundamentalists uh, Charles Hodge, 19th century Princetonian uh, Presbyterian theologian, wrote a systematic theology in which he said this was explicitly was the task of the theologian to mm -hmm. line up the propositions of Scripture and arrange them in a systematic order and then present that as the sum of Christian doctrine. That's not how, how Catholics look at the Bible, right? So f for us, the Bible is the inspired record of the journey of the people of God 
in their relationship with God. And it's an inspired record, but it's, but it's a developmental account of the people of God in their relationship with God leading up to and fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And uh, it is a deeply layered and nuanced text. And the purpose of the whole thing ultimately is to lead us to Christ. And so uh, Pope Benedict, for example, will make the claim, and he has made this claim, that read at that level, we can tolerate a certain amount of what he would call, say, material insufficiencies in the text of Scripture, uh, because, you know, if, uh, a, a, a 10th century B.C. writer, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. may write with the perspective of, say, the, the cosmological assumptions of someone who lives in 10th century B.C. Israel, right, which we now know don't line up with natural science. I mean, we don't think there's a vault in heaven and that the stars are fixed bodies in that vault and that, you know, you know, God's throne is literally affixed atop a dome. Like, we don't have to think that way anymore. But that's incidental to the salvific message therein, sure. right? It's a, it's a perspective that a 10th century B.C. writer took that was just—he was just assuming the cosmology of the day, right? Yeah. And we all do this. Like, if I'm going to describe— um, you know, God's activity in the world today and try to give an account that makes sense to a 21st century person. I'm gonna, I might do it in terms of things like quantum physics and, and you know, Newtonian physics and what we know about the, the nature of the universe. And that wouldn't, you know, my, my theological judgments wouldn't become invalidated if in a thousand years we come up with a new physics, right? It's just, an, it, you're just expressing theological terms in contemporary idiom, sure. right? Uh, and so the Catholic Church doesn't view that sort of thing as a problem either. Um, then there would be the claim that fundamentally the Bible just misleads you in your relationship with God. And that's where the, the Catholic would say, no, that's not, that's not true, provided you approach the Bible in the right way, which is to read it in this developmental spiritual way, guided by the tradition of the Church and the living magisterium. And lived in that dynamic relationship, the Bible has effectively led people to a salvific relationship with God and produced saints and will continue to do so until Christ comes back. Hey, Tom, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Glad you're listening in Twinsburg, Ohio. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Mark now in Houston, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 1430. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, good afternoon. Um, I had a question uh, or a comment on your uh, discussion on a Friday's program, actually. You were talking about purgatory. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that purgatory is the method by which we are purified from our sin. And uh, I believe you said that there's no other um, answer or solution to that uh, need for purification. Did I get that right? No, that's not correct. Okay, what did I miss? I'm sorry. Yeah, there are lots of ways to purify us from sin. So let me give you one. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 7. He says, Therefore, since we have these promises of Christ... Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So Paul tells us that purification is something that we can, we can take up to do ourselves, right? Mm. And there's an entire spirituality in the history of Christianity. We, we may call it asceticism or ascetical practices where people do just this, right? They commit themselves to some regime of denial and abnegation. Uh, in order to tame uh, the unruly passions in their bodies. Uh, They might practice fasting and vigils and um, celibacy, uh, you know, know, different activities that are specifically designed to help me get a hold of my unruly passions and things that might lead me into various forms of impurity. And that's something that I can undertake. There are disciplines that I can undertake by my own will. Mm -hmm. And Christ, though he was in no need of purification, 
modeled this to us by his own fasts and prayers and vigils, his 40 days in the desert. And of course, we know that he spent a whole nights sometimes in prayer to his father. And in doing so, he was modeling for us a, a way of spirituality, a way of being in the world in which mm-hmm. we were, you know, in the world, not of it. And, uh, and it war with the desires of our flesh and ultimately trying to purify ourselves so that the soul has no need of purgatory. Um, so uh, there's that. Now, the, the sacraments that Christ instituted also purify the soul from real and actual sin. So baptism, for example, Catholic teaching has purifies us from original and actual sin and remits all temporal punishment due to sin. So there, there, are, there are lots of ways that we can be purified. Now, purgatory is sort of like the, you know, you're, you're walking the tightrope act, and you have the net below, yeah, <laughs> get yeah. you fall off, you know. <laughs> purgatory is kind of the net below the tightrope for, uh, tight for people who don't do the adequate pur- uh, purification in this life through any means. Uh, they have got that sort of last, last place where they can get purified if they die in the state of grace. Yes, indeed. Mark, thanks so much uh, for your question from Houston today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Congratulations going out to two members of our EWTN radio family, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Radio, that's in Essex Junction, Vermont, celebrating their sixth year with EWTN. Congratulations. Also, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Radio, they're in Pittsburgh, Kansas, marking nine years with us. Congratulations to Donna McSoley in Vermont and Father Bob, Bob McElwee in Kansas from your friends here at EWTN. Back to the phones now for Maria in Syracuse, New York, watching on EWTN television today. Hello, Maria. What's on your mind today? curious what you all think of um, the prophecies that are floating around right now. It seems like you can't go anywhere online or, you know, uh, any kind of Catholic sites where people are talking about no travel after October. We're getting close to the tribulation. Um, three dark days. You know, you have to have your stock of food. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can speak to that question. Sure. Sure. So in my house, uh, I have only, what, uh, D-cell battery flashlights. (laughs) I don't have have any beeswax plus candles. Okay. Um, I don't stock any more food than my pathetic pantry can hold. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and you know, I have travel plans. Uh, I've got speaking engagements, you know, way out into next year. I'm not going to cancel my travel plans over the next year or two years or whatever. Um, you know, I'm 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 still planning on you know how how can I help my grandchildren go to college you know in the next 18 years. So I mean I'm I assume the end of the world for me is going to come probably in the next 30 years because I'm 52 and the actuaries say Andrew will probably be dead by the time you're 80. And my dad died when he was 82. My grandfather died at 85. So I figure 80 85 is probably at the outset the best that I'll do. My end of the world will come in that period of time. But I fully expect my grandchildren to continue to live. Uh, and my great-grandchildren after me. So so the thing is, St. Paul said to the church of his own day, he said, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. So he wrote in the first century, we are those upon whom the end of the ages have, have come. Mm-hmm. So the church has been in the last days for 2,000 years. So from one point of view, it is entirely plausible that we are still in the early church. Mm. We could have another 100,000 years to go, right? Yeah. And, and I'm a student of church history, and we have a lot more knowledge about the past than we do the future. Of the future, we know almost nothing. Of the past, we know quite a lot. And one of the things that I know as a church historian is that for 2,000 years, seers and visionaries have popped up and said, I've had some extraordinary revelation, and I can tell you with certainty that the end of the world is going to come in 
1126 or 1492 or 1917 or whatever. And you know what? Every single one of them has been wrong. Huh. Every single one of those guys has been wrong. So the one thing that I know with certainty is that we're closer to the end of the world now than we've ever been. But, of course, that's always been the case. Always. That's always been the case. And this kind of attitude, the, the, the apocalyptic date-setting, fear-mongering attitude, personally, I find to be deeply antithetic to the spirit of Catholic life, right? Because the, the Church tells us and Christ tells us that we're to be salt and light. We're to make a difference in the world. There's a, there's a specific vocation unique to the laity. We're to sanctify the world of work, mm-hmm. the world of commerce, the world of children, the world of Little League baseball, Right, yeah. we're supposed to go out there and do that work. The the, the 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 clergy are to sanctify us through the sacraments. We're to sanctify the world, and that means we have to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and not just in devotional acts of charity, but in in real social action. There's a thing called social justice, and Catholics are to be agents for transformation in the world. Um, that's why we have agencies like like uh, you know Catholic Relief Services. Sure, you know, sure. They, they they go to difficult places in the world, and they, they try to do good to folks, right? And they, they, it requires a significant investment of time and resources and, and uh, infrastructure to make those kinds of changes. We have to advocate for policy at the national and local and international level. We pursue human rights. and That whole agenda of trying to make a positive difference in the world is, is undermined by an attitude that says, Jesus is going to come back next week, and I know because some saint or visionary told me so, Right. And historically, it's it's led to those kinds of outcomes. It's led to sort of anti-social, anti-authoritarian outcomes, mm-hmm. and uh, and typically hurt folks. So they 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 will withdraw from civil society, and worse, they prey upon the vulnerable and the gullible. Uh, people can be persuaded to you know give up their life savings to some seer or charismatic leader who claims to be leading the the doomsday cult, and then they're left bereft and 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 uh, and, and hopeless. And it's just the, the the capacity for exploitation is is great. And honestly, revolutionary violence. I mean, a lot of political revolution and bloodshed down the years has been fomented by, by apocalyptic furor that's proved to be misguided, ultimately, and people have lost their lives over this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I, I, I strongly discourage anyone from giving any attention to date-setting apocalyptic madness. Uh, the church doesn't. You don't find the bishops doing this. My, my bishop in Birmingham is not telling everybody to stockpile, you know, canned goods for the next week and cancel his plans for the next synod of bishops or whatever it might be. The Pope isn't saying this. The bishops aren't saying it. Um, and, uh, and everyone who's ever said it in the history of the Church has been wrong and just really wrong, very mm. dangerously wrong. Sure. So my advice is stay away from it. Maria, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let me tell you about one of the wonderful podcasts we offer to you each and every day. Check it out at EWTN's Podcast Central. One of them is called Daily Dose of Encouragement. Your host, Patty Schneier, provides insightful and inspirational thoughts by bringing spiritual insights to everyday living. You can hear Daily Dose of Encouragement, as well as some great faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation. You'll find them all in one place. And they're all free by going to EWTN Podcast Central. Visit EWTN.com radio slash podcasts today. We have a wonderful assortment of podcasts right there at Podcast Central. I encourage you to go and check them out. Here now, Maureen, a first-time caller in New York, watching on EWTN television. Hello, Maureen. What's on your mind today? Maureen in New York, are you there? 
Why don't we put Maureen on hold, if you would, please, Charles? Let's go to uh, Kathleen in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Kathleen, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. Yes, I have a question. Uh, Recently, uh, we were talking about the Scripture reading where it says, you're saved by grace alone, not by good works. And this one gentleman said, doesn't do any good, do do any good works, you're not saved. And I thought, didn't Jesus say, what you do for the least of me, others you do for me? And wouldn't you receive grace? Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm very curious. Uh, in what kind of church was this Bible study held? You know, it, 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 it's just a, a, a daily gathering, and they there's um, it's called our daily bread, and they have scripture verses and then stories that go along with it. And so, the <laughs> the people who participate in this Bible study, maybe some of them are Catholic and some of them are non-Catholic. Correct. Ecumenical. I, I got you. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So, as you might be aware, there's a there's a major disagreement, major disagreement, between Catholics and non-Catholics about the meaning of this text. And you you used a phrase that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say we're saved by grace alone. That phrase is never found in the Bible, and nor is the phrase faith alone ever found in the Bible. The Bible says we're saved by grace. The Bible says we're saved by faith. It says we're saved by grace and faith and not by works of the law. But it never says we're saved by grace or faith alone. Now, that alone business is something that was inserted into the tradition by Martin Luther, who was a Protestant theologian of the 16th century. But it's not the biblical teaching, and it's not the teaching that we find in Christianity for its first 1,500 years. So let me unpack for you what Scripture means when it says that we're saved by grace and not by works of the law. So, in the first century, of course, Jesus was Jewish, all his disciples were Jewish, and the earliest Christians were Jewish, and Christ came as the Messiah of the Jews, the long-awaited son of David, who was in the Messianic line, he was in the Davidic line, royal line of Israel, who would redeem Israel and vindicate her in the face of her enemies uh, before the great coming day of the Lord. And that's the way his earliest disciples understood him. And then a man named Saul, who became known to us as St. Paul, had a vision where he saw Christ, and Christ told him to go also to the Gentiles, that is, to non-Jewish people, and to invite them also into this new uh, coming kingdom of God. And uh, the question arose, well, to participate, did Gentiles have to become Jews? Because, see, what marks out a Jewish person today, as well as in the ancient world, is they have a whole list of rules that they follow food they can eat and not eat, clothes they can wear and not wear, mm-hmm. places they can go and not go, you know, different, different practices that they have to undertake. And it's, it's, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's, a, it's a rather encompassing set of rituals that are meant to distinguish them from the world at large. And so the question was, did Gentiles who become believers in Christ and heirs of the kingdom, do they have to become Jews? And what St. Paul taught and what the Catholic Church taught and what sacred scripture teaches ultimately was no— No, they don't have to become Jews. That is to say, they don't have to follow the works of the law. The works of the law were those elements of Jewish faith and practice that separated Jews from Gentiles. Things like circumcising your son Mm -hmm. or not eating shellfish and pork, that kind of thing. Those are the things that a Gentile doesn't have to do. Rather, when he has faith in Christ, God gives him grace and extends his Holy Spirit to the Gentile believer. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit pours God's love into his heart 
as we read in Romans 5, 5. And therefore, the one who has the Spirit, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, mm -hmm. the one who has the Spirit has fully met the demands of the law. Why? Because the law ultimately demands the love of God and neighbor. That's the gift that's poured into his heart. This ethical transformation so that he becomes like Christ and truly loves God and truly loves neighbor. And so when Christ says, you have to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give drink to the thirsty, it's not ritual prescriptions of the Mosaic law that he enjoins. It's the ethical transformation of life whereby we come to genuinely love and care about our neighbor, including the least of those among us. The poor, the outcast, the lame, the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner. We love these as Jesus loved them. We do this by the power of God's Spirit that's come to us through faith, by the work of God's grace in our hearts. And so St. Paul's teaching about faith and grace and law and justification in no way obviates giving to the hungry or clothing the naked or, or works of charity, in no way uh, obviates uh, uh, good works of a moral character. What it does is it makes Jewish observance unnecessary for the Christian. Hmm. What Martin Luther introduced 1,500 years later for Protestants only was the idea that Paul was eliminating morality as such as having anything to do with the spiritual life. And that was just a, a profound misreading of the apostle, and it, it sets us up for the kind of problems that your that your friend suggested that somehow we're we, it's it's pointless to go out and do works of charity because they have no effect on our salvation. That's just patently false, and it contradicts the plain teaching of Jesus, who says in Matthew chapter twenty-five that on the last day many people will come to him and say, "Lord, I Lord, Lord," and he'll say, yeah. "I never knew you because you didn't feed the hungry or give drink to the thirsty." Yeah, Kathleen, thanks so much uh, for your call. Here's a question now from Mary F watching us on YouTube today. Mary says, why do Catholics refer to the church as she? Right, because Scripture describes the church in a relationship to Christ as a bride to a bridegroom. Ah, beautiful. Very good. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for your question. Here's one now from Facebook Live. Hannibal says, why do the Catholic laity not wear the Catholic yarmulke? Well, I, I wasn't aware that there was a Catholic yarmulke besides the, the <laughs> bishop's zucchetto. You know, we do have, yes. there are some headgear that you find among the hierarchy mm -hmm. that has a kind of yarmulke lush look to it. But uh, I wasn't aware beyond that that there was a Catholic yarmulke. And, and we wouldn't do that or would, as the case may be, as a matter of indifference. Because what we place on our bodies, outward covering, has very little to do ultimately with the disposition of the soul and it's the love of God and neighbor. St. Paul says at the end, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That's ultimately what matters in our relationship with God. So whatever you wear or whatever you eat or whatever kind of music you dance to only has spiritual significance insofar as it moves you towards or away from the love of God and neighbor. So if wearing a hat makes you love your neighbor more, hey, put on that hat. But, you know, if taking my hat off helps me, then I'll take it off. There you go. Thanks so much for your question via Facebook. Uh, Gregory is watching us on YouTube in Croatia. Uh, Gregory says, what should the Catholic stance be on the rapid mass immigration in Europe, introducing a different primarily Muslim culture, potentially accompanied by welfare system abuses and poor integration? Right. So fortunately on this show, I am spared the obligation of setting international policy. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, so so I can give you some parameters that I think fall with uh, and align with Catholic social teaching and principles of justice. But I will I will steer clear of actually trying to pronounce on policy. Um, on the one hand, the church teaches that nations have a right to their sovereignty and to the and to the maintenance of their borders and the, to control who comes in and who doesn't come in. 
um, uh, immigrants uh, also have human dignity and real human needs. And Mm -hmm. if you look at the kind of deprivation that some immigrants have undergone in their attempts to reach Western countries, whether it be the United States or, or, or Western Europe, many of them are exposed to tremendous dangers, piracy, kidnapping, drowning, um, and it shows you the kind of links that they're willing to go through in the hopes of a better life because oftentimes the situations that they're leaving are quite desperate and quite terrible, mm. right? And, and so we have to look at the humanity of the people involved and the kinds of things that might be driving them and find a balance between the internal security needs of the, of the, uh, of the host nations mm-hmm. and the real human needs of those that are, that are seeking entrance, right? So that's, 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 the, that's the play that we've got to, the balancing act that we've got to play. Um, you know, the, the Muslim thing is an issue, right? Because um, uh, there are, historically, Islam and Christianity have been at loggerheads with one another, and the relationship's been quite antagonistic. And um, and it leads to some serious social dis, uh, dislocation. I'll put it that way. Um, you know, in um, I may get in trouble for saying this, but in 16th century France, 17th century France, we had an analogous situation where Protestantism uh, began to proliferate in France. And in the theology of the time, it's different today. But in the theology of the time, it implied a, a, not only a different theology of salvation, but a different civil polity as well. And uh, there were cities within France that became predominantly Protestant. And um, and were kind of effectively sort of um, autonomous zones, right? That were somewhat outside the royal authority, and so the religious question, the political question, and the disparity of cult ultimately led to the French Civil Wars. We want to avoid that outcome in the future. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I know how to do that, so I'm not going to stand here and prescribe policy, sure. right? But uh, but that these kinds of issues are real. The questions you've raised are real. That they can provoke serious uh, social unrest and even lead to violence. I think is evident from history. And so, uh, we need we need not reactionary conservatism, conservatism or knee jerk liberalism. Yeah. We need we need sound rational policy that really wrestles with all of these issues. Yes, indeed. And thanks so much for watching us in Croatia today. We also got a question from Gene watching us on YouTube that we just don't have time to answer. We're going to hold that over until tomorrow's program. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. We also encore that at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN. Dot, uh, EWTN.com slash radio EWTN.com slash radio On behalf of our great team here I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders Thanks for joining us We'll see you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion Have a great day and God bless <laughs>